0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church podcast. Today's message is "Lose Your Life" by Pastor Sean Wood. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, we will begin there this morning, and we'll make our way uh, through to chapter eighteen later on. I had, I had prepared, I had prepared an awesome introduction and a riveting conclusion, but the plans of man are many, but the ways of God shall be established. So we're going to forget those this morning, I'll track as closely as I can to what's on the, on the notes. I want to ask everybody a question here, I'm going to answer this question at the end, I want to ask everybody a question, does everybody know the scripture in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Isn't that an awesome verse? Who would like to be in the triumphal procession of Christ? Raise your hands this morning. Yes, okay. I wonder whether that will be the same by the time we're finished today. I have a sneaking suspicion that we don't fully understand what a triumphal procession is. this morning, we're going to continue to look at discipleship. And volumes have been written, programs have been designed, and churches are flailing to answer the question, what is discipleship? And how is it that we achieve discipleship in our churches? I want to tell you the answer is enormously simple. In fact, it's so simple that we've looked over it completely. Jesus tells us what a disciple is. And today I want to tell you what Jesus's words were. I want to look at those words this morning, but I also want to give you two examples. This morning I want to talk about losing your life. It, it sounds like somewhat of an oxymoron, but the fact of the matter is, do you know the gospel? Do you know that salvation in Jesus Christ is 100% free? You can't earn it. You couldn't earn it even if you wanted to. It is a free gift of God to every man that accepts it. But here's the flip side of the coin. And Jesus didn't leave this out. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Discipleship is the process of, where we, each and every one of us, lose our lives. And for the military people amongst us this morning and the ex-military people, you may know what a triumphal procession is. I pray you do. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to all who surround him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't say uh, for those in ministry that want to come after me, Jesus didn't say for the pastors, Jesus didn't say for the for the life group leaders, Jesus said for anybody who comes up after me, they must deny himself and take up very interesting terminology and take up his cross and follow me the amazing thing is Jesus doesn't put this in the fine print this isn't isn't a little bit that he adds on to the end of the sermon about how everything's going to be rosy if you follow Jesus Jesus puts this right at the front this is his introduction This is life in Christ and discipleship looks like this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. To deny something or someone is to disassociate ourselves with someone or something. When Peter denied Christ, he disassociated himself with Christ. I don't know that man Is what he said. So to deny what Jesus is saying, following him, we must deny ourselves. A.W. Tozer says we tolerate the greatest enemy in our lives at our peril, and the enemy is self. Where we think we can be self righteous, where every motivation is self motivated. But what does it mean for one of us to take up our cross? Notice that Jesus says, whoever comes after me must take up their cross. In the first century, crosses were imposed on people. And for those that think that Jesus had his cross imposed on him, Jesus willingly walked the road to the cross. And Jesus is not saying that he will impose anything on us, but we must take up our cross and follow him. And I wonder if we're ready for that. Think about the fullness of the road to Golgotha for Christ. It begins, the, the, the passion really begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I wonder whether we are all, and I was deeply challenged when I was thinking about this, I wonder whether we are ready to cry out to God, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus will bring every man, woman and child that follows him. You must come to Gethsemane. You you will be brought to Gethsemane. You will be brought to a point in your life where you say, I willingly lay down all of my self-interest. I willingly lay down building my own kingdom. I willingly lay down all of my own life here, Lord, because I want to follow you. And the beauty of grace is this, it compels us, not because we have to, but because we want to. Paul, writing to the Romans, says, you don't get grace. You think grace is a free license to do whatever you want. He says, but when you fully understand grace, you will embrace Christ. So Jesus says, any other come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, his cross. Each and every one of us have our own individual paths of laying down our lives for Christ. For anyone that comes after me must take up his cross and follow me daily. And the minute that Jesus says that, you can put the wooden beams away. Jesus is not talking literally. The minute he says daily, he says, this is your daily walk of life where you have to put yourself aside and follow me you might be sitting here this morning saying, I wonder what that looks like. We're going to get to that as we go on. But let's, let's have a look at what else Jesus said. Some radical, Jesus had some radical things to say, didn't he? Radical. I mean, if Jesus was here today, we would, we would call him radical. Far out. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, sake, there's the purpose, we will save it. To save something is to try and keep or trying to preserve or trying to rescue. And friends, I am not being your pastor if I allow you to clamber and grasp onto this life because you run the risk of forfeiting your very self. The upside down, uh, Tim Keller calls it the upside down kingdom of God. This is upside down. This is backwards for us. This doesn't sound anything like logic to us, but God's logic is usually our foolishness. Jesus says to these guys, he says, if if you're going to try and save your life, you're going to lose it. If you're going to try and hang on to your life, it's going to slip through your fingers if every motivation of your heart and your life is to try and construct here, if, if the sum total of your life ends here, if you're trying to have Jesus end, you're going to lose everything. If you're a mathematician here today, I've got some formulas for you that are going to make you spin because Jesus had some mathematical formulas that were amazing. But Jesus goes on and says, if you, if you lose your life, you will save it. And by losing our lives, we are completely and utterly ceasing to have or retain. And the purpose is this. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And immediately Jesus associates who we are From what we have. Two completely different things now. Jesus says, you can have everything and still lose yourself. (coughs) In Western society, I mentioned this last week, in Western society there is a growing number of people that I meet that are up and out. They, they climb to the top of the mountain. They, they've been enormously successful in business. They have, they have enormously large bank accounts. They, uh, they have enormously large social status. Everybody wants to be their friend. But what happens is they thought that that's what life was all about, but they get to the top of the mountain and they say, oh, I'm just as empty as what I was when I was at the bottom. I thought life was all about what I have. Jesus says you can have everything, you can have the whole world and yet forfeit yourself for whoever is ashamed of me. And that's an interesting word and we always say automatically that no, we're not ashamed of Jesus. Peter thought that too. But being ashamed of someone means you don't want to be seen in public with them or you, you try to avoid them or you don't want to talk about them. I wonder, I wonder whether we talk as openly about Jesus on Monday as we do on Sunday. I, I, wonder whether, I wonder whether we're just as happy for everybody to know that we're associated with the person of Jesus Christ no matter what the environment is that we're in. I wonder whether that is the case. The challenging words. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God under salvation if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 18, I I have spoken on these two guys before and they just highlight beautifully what I want to say this morning about saving our life and losing our life. The first character we come to is a man that is trying to save his life. Before I introduce the rich young ruler, I want to give you a mathematical equation that might make you spin. If if ever you hear Jesus plus something equals, uh, the answer will always be nothing. Jesus and anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When you get to a point in your life where you say, my life is all of Jesus and that's all I need or want, you have everything. Tell me what it is that they can take away from you then. They can take nothing away. But there's a rich ...young ruler mentioned in every one of the Gospels. And he comes to Jesus. And this ruler... Uh, first of all, we know that he was rich. Secondly, we know he was young. And to be a ruler in the first century meant you probably uh, were in charge of a local synagogue. You were probably like the pastor of a local synagogue, Jewish synagogue. You, you, will have, you would have been well versed in the law. You would have been well versed in all of the commandments and how that applies to people's lives. You would have had enormous social standing. You know, these guys in their villages, they, 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 they walk through they walk through the town and everybody wants to be your friend and they wear the finest of clothes and this guy has amassed great wealth. And he comes to Jesus with a question. He says, good teacher, we'll get to the good part in a moment, but he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What an arrogant question. to think that there is anything that you could do in the first place that could get you to the point where you could be saved or in right standing with God. But here's the oxymoron. How can you do anything and inherit something? Because an inheritance is something that is given. An inheritance is something that is bestowed. An inheritance comes on most people due to their family line or the name that they bear. We have an inheritance in Christ. Why? Because of the name you bear. You have an inheritance in Christ. But you can't earn an inheritance. (coughs) I was neither very good at math, and I was neither very good at spelling in school. So you'll have to forgive me because I spell religion D O, but I spell Christianity D O N E. And the rich young rulers missed it. He comes to Jesus, he's a guy that knows all of the law. He's a guy that knows all of the commandments. He's a guy who in his mind and in his heart has said, this is how we approach and deal with God. And he comes to Jesus. Why? Because something's missing. What more can I do? What more can I possibly do so that I can have and inherit eternal life? I love the answer of Jesus here, he says, uh, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? We've covered this many times, but whenever God asks you a question, he's not looking for information. (laughs) Okay, He knows the answer to the question. But why would he ask him that? Why would Jesus ask him, why do you call me good? The answer is given to us. No one is good except God alone. Uh, In the first century, everybody associated the word good or goodness with God alone. Only God is good. Only his ways are good. Only what he thinks and what he says and what he does is just. He is the good one. And what Jesus wants to open up in the heart of the rich young ruler is, if I am a good teacher, if you associate goodness with me, we need to have a completely different conversation. Because you're associating me with divinity if I am good. The minute Jesus goes from being a man to divinity, to God, something happens in a person's life. And it's the journey I pray that every person is on. Why do you call me good? None is good except God alone. I love the answer of Christ. He goes on, he says, you know the commandments. (laughs) Have a listen to the commandments here. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness and honour your father and your mother. There are 10 commandments, I've said this before as well, there are 10 commandments, five of those commandments apply to our vertical relationship with God, such as you shall have no idols before me, you shall not take my name in vain. Five commandments deal with our relationship with God. The other five are horizontal commandments that deal with our relationship with other people and they are the five that are listed here. This is not accidental from Jesus. You know the commandments. You know what you've got to do. There's no talk about God. There's no talk about his relationship with God. Religion will always leave you wanting more. Religion will always leave you striving in your own strength. All of the religions of the world paint a picture of man striving after God. Only, and only in Christianity is that reversed. And the whole Bible and the whole story of the Gospel is God striving after the heart of men. You know the commandments. You know what you've got to do. And it's kind of like the Christmas tree, isn't it? Uh, Christmas is rapidly approaching, for those who haven't noticed. We're in August so uh, Christmas is around the corner, but uh, when I was in the forestry, Christmas time would come, and uh, nearly every day we would drive past uh, coop after coop of pine trees at varying stages in height. <laughs> and so, uh, right before Christmas, we'd pull over, and the boys would hack down a Christmas tree, chuck it on the back of the ute, and that would. I noticed something, which is not that hard to notice. Some two or three weeks later, that tree that they'd cut down and taken home, they actually, most of them take it home, they put it in soil. But we drive past those other pine trees and they're all alive, but this one's dead. And religion is like the Christmas tree. It's throwing decorations on something that in, deep inside is still dead. And you can throw all the decorations on a dead Christmas tree that you like, it's still dead. It's got no life inside of it. The branches will go brown. Eventually all the needles will fall off. And you can throw all the decorations and put a nice pretty little star on top. You can sing all the little songs you like, but that tree's dead. And it's a little bit the same for the rich young ruler here. He he can throw all the decorations he likes on his tree. What he needs is life. But he has an answer for Jesus. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And how's that working out for you? You see, Paul, when he's writing to the Philippian church, Paul was an extraordinarily intelligent man. Very, very well educated. He reels off his credentials. From a physical standpoint, Paul had an enormous resume. He was... He was brought up, he says, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi of the time. He says, according to the law, he says, I was blameless. I knew the rules, I knew the regulations, I kept them, I was blameless. And he says, if I can use Australian vernacular to translate it into Australian language, the the Australian version would say, it was all a load of crap or in the Greek we translate it, I considered that all to be done because it was all decorations on the tree but I had no life inside of me. All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there's one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. The one thing... That so many of us lack is the most common thing. I'm going to move very quickly. And that is, Jesus goes on and says to him, you need to sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Jesus says there's one thing you still lack is the fact that uh, the outside looks good, but on the inside, there's no room. You see, the rich young rulers trying to have all of the world in one hand, and all of God, in the other hand. J.I. Packer says, beautifully, he says, faith is an embrace. And Jesus demands that every single one of us choose our world. And what happens with the rich young ruler is he's trying to hang on to both worlds. I want both worlds. How do I have both worlds, Jesus? How do I enjoy the fullness of this life? How do I have everything I want in this life? How do I have it so that everything goes well for me here, but I still want all the fullness of you? And Jesus says you can't. Why? Because faith is an embrace and it means you've got to let go of one so that you can embrace the other. And the remedy is put a for sale sign on some of the things in your heart. And there are some of us here this morning that need to put a for sale sign on some of the things in our hearts and it goes deeper than possessions. Because it goes deeper than possessions for the rich young ruler. This isn't about what he's got. This isn't about his wealth. It's about his heart. Something's missing. The one thing you lack is there's no room for me. See, see, Jesus makes it clear. I will reign in your heart unrivaled and unchallenged. Or I won't reign in your heart at all. God never shares his throne. Go and sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. I love how this part finishes. Firstly, it's sad, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich young ruler leaves just as empty as he came. People have often asked me, is it possible to miss it? Is it possible to miss your calling? Is it possible to miss God? The rich young ruler has just displayed very clearly, you can be in front of the Son of God and walk away just as empty as you came. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I love this last part. Those who heard it said, "Who Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It is only possible for God to, to so compel us to let go of fully of one world and to grasp hold of the other. So many people are filling churches. So many people uh, come into my office at times saying, I want all the fullness of God. But we want to have half the world as well. And you can't. There are no fractions in heaven. We don't divide anything. God reigns as a whole. History tells us, and the Bible tells us, just wait and see what God will do with somebody who fully lets go of one of those worlds. If you will let go of this world and embrace him with all that you have and both of your arms, sit back and watch what God will do with you. You might be sitting here this morning saying, I wonder what that looks like. We're, we're about to answer that question. But you go back through history, and I'm going I'm to reel off some names that some of us might be familiar with. What about guys like Charles Finney? What about guys like Smith Wigglesworth? There isn't a biography written about Smith Wigglesworth that isn't in my office. You can come and get him anytime you like. And what I like about Smith Wigglesworth is, here, here's a guy that was a Yorkshire plumber that learnt to read on the Bible by his wife and turned his community upside down. The lives that God touched through Smith Wigglesworth, the testimonies are still being written today. And what I love about the testimony of Smith Wigglesworth is if God can do it through him, he can do it through you. What about guys like John and Charles Wesley? George Mueller. If you want to know what faith looks like in practical living, read the testimonies of George Mueller. George Mueller's a guy that wakes up running an orphanage, wakes up, has got no food. Praise to God. How am I going to feed these 80 children? Knock on the door. Uh, We had all this bread left over at the bakery. Would you like this bread? That happened every day for George Mueller, right throughout the whole. He says, "I won't ask." He said, "I'm not going to ask one man for anything," and he never asked for anything. God gave him everything, and he fed child after child after child in an orphanage by the faith of God. Have a look what God will do for any man or woman or child that will fully let go of this world and embrace Him. What does that look like? Turn the page, chapter 19, verse 1. We'll move quickly. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Please note that Jesus was passing through Jericho. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. Most of us, if you've been in Sunday school, you've heard the story of Zacchaeus. It's a comical story. But how deeply he and profoundly he displays what we're talking about this morning. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. If you were a tax collector in the first century, most people didn't like you. If you were the chief tax collector in the first century, everybody hated you. And the reason for that was you only became rich by ripping everybody else off. It goes a little bit like this. Rome imposes 10 cents in the dollar tax. The tax collector says it's 20 cents in the dollar. No, it's not like our society now. And he was seeking, I love this, he was seeking to see who... Jesus was not what he's got all too often we come into the presence of God and we're looking in his hands what have you got for me God and we miss he was a chief tax collector and was rich he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. That is the strongest, strongest emphasis of fellowship you could find in the first century. I want to come into your house and I want to have a meal. What is Jesus saying to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, come on down out of the tree. I want to have fellowship with you. Zacchaeus teaches us if you've got to climb trees, whatever you've got to do to see who Jesus is, go ahead and do it. Climb trees, do whatever you have to do. But this Zacchaeus, have a listen. He, <clears throat> Jesus comes into his house, verse 6. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. Beautiful words. <clears throat> and they saw, and they that saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Isn't it interesting that the religious guy goes away as empty as he came? Have a look at what happens to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Who knows, he probably hasn't got a whole lot left. I give the half of my goods to the poor. And the other half, if I've ripped anybody off, (laughs) if, if I've defrauded anybody, Lord, let's just use the word when, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay it back four times. And I hear two words in that sentence that we all need to embrace. The first one is abandonment. Zaki says, Psh, I'll, give it, I'll give half of it away. And then the next one is repentance. And if I've ripped anybody off, I'll pay it back. What do I have to do, Lord? I'll let go of everything. I just want you. No list of regulations. We're not talking about theology. We're not talking about doctrine. What do I have to do to have Jesus? I'll give, I'll give half of it away. Jesus said to him, today's salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' answered to Zacchaeus is today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, in a very short period of time, lost his life. At the start, I asked everybody who wants to be in the triumphal procession of Christ. In the first century, a triumphal procession was a a Roman analogy that everybody knew. Basically what happens is this. A general goes off into a far land And he conquers while he's there, and he will take, he will kill most people, but he will take the most important people. He will take all of the leaders, he will take all of the important people, and he will bring them back to Rome in various stages. And after such a great victory, after some time, they will let everybody in the city know we're going to have a triumphal procession. And that that Roman leader will march at the front with all of his army and and some of his generals as well. They will all march at the front and the triumphal procession will consist of every single person in the triumphal procession is somebody that has been conquered and somebody that has been defeated and you are normally being led to your death. Hang on. We're all about the victory in Christ, aren't we? Yes, we are. And Paul didn't talk about, this is not Jesus leading the powers of darkness in a triumphal procession. That's not what's happening. Why? Because Paul says, thanks be to God who continually leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I'm in Christ's triumphal procession. And just like, just like every one of those conquered and defeated slaves, my whole life is being led to giving it away. Every single person in the triumphal procession was there for one reason. It's a resounding statement that is saying, glory to the one who has conquered And God leads us in the triumphal procession of Christ. Why? So that we can exemplify the glory of the one who has conquered and defeated our hearts. I'm not going to ask for another show of hands, but I want to ask every single person in this place here this morning do you want to be in the triumphal procession of Christ? There is one prerequisite for entering Christ's triumphal procession. He must conquer you. Discipleship. Answering the question, what is discipleship? It is losing your life and entering the triumphal procession of Christ. Let him conquer you. How do we make disciples? Disciples. What does a church need to do to to make disciples? We are ever urging, ever encouraging, not only ourselves, but everybody else, to lose your life. I, I I wonder what God could do with one person. History has told us many times what God can do with one person who allows Christ to fully conquer them. I wonder what God could do with a church that says, you know what? Jesus you go ahead and conquer me. Do you know every time I open my eyes of the morning Jesus needs to reconquer me half the time. This is a daily thing. Daily we need to set ourselves aside. But when but when you are conquered you have a new king. The the difference isn't perfection. The difference is who sits on the throne in our lives. And Jesus never shares that throne. Can we stand in his presence this morning? I want to ask everybody in this room this morning, has Christ conquered you? I want to urge everybody in this room to go away and ponder these words. Are we as individuals and as we as a church willing to enter the triumphal procession of Christ and let all of our lives and everything that we do and all of who we are, are we willing for that to be for the exemplification of his glory? Father, as we pray this morning, you know each heart that stands in this room this morning. And I pray, Lord God, that you would put fingers on people's hearts. There are those here this morning who Jesus has never conquered. Forgive us, Father, that you even need to conquer us. Forgive us for the times when we are half-hearted. Forgive us for the times when we are idle. Forgive us for the times when we cling to this world. But Lord, conquer our hearts. Use us to display your glory in this community. We ask this in your wonderful name. Amen.